Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Dead Next Door from 1989, written and directed by J.R. Bookwalter. You might have heard of Bookwalter if you're a connoisseur of cult cinema and outsider art. He's had something of a long career that includes films like Robot Ninja, Zombie Cop, Kingdom of the Vampires, Mega Scorpions, and The Sandman. Not the Neil Gaiman Sandman produced by Netflix, but an unrelated horror movie with the same title. He's been working as a writer, editor, director, composer, and producer since the 80s, but The Dead Next Door was his first feature. He'd just dropped out of college, and he was hoping to work his way into Hollywood by taking small jobs on horror productions. He'd already been a zombie extra on Day of the Dead, a movie whose influence looms large over this one. Bookwalter went to Sam Raimi with a highlight reel of his short films, offering to work as a production assistant, and Sam said, in essence, why are you wasting your time trying to do odd jobs on my movie? You're already making your own movies. That's the dream. Go out and make your movie. And that could be taken as a kind of polite and friendly brush-off, a no that sounds like a compliment. Except that when Bookwalter took him at his word and came up with a screenplay for a feature film, Raimi agreed to put his money where his mouth was and executive produced the feature out of his own pocket using his salary from Evil Dead 2. He did so anonymously, using the pseudonym The Master Cylinder in the credits, presumably because he didn't want to be inundated with similar requests from low-budget filmmakers during a period where he was still trying to get his own movies funded. But the offer really meant a lot to Bookwalter, who can trace his entire career as an independent director and producer back to this single act of trust and generosity. And it wasn't just money that he gave. Scott Spiegel, Raimi's friend and co-producer on the Evil Dead movies, appears here as the doomed police officer Richards and used his experience on the original Evil Dead to teach Bookwalter and his cinematographer Michael Tolachko how to use their light meter. Tolachko's since gone on to do lighting for movies like Licorice Pizza, Argo, and two of the Iron Man films, to name a few out of a career that spans nearly a hundred movies, so he apparently put that knowledge to very good use. And Bruce Campbell, who just finished up on Evil Dead 2 as this movie was in post-production, lent his ear to the sound mixing and his voice to the dubbing as both Raimi and Commander Carpenter. So, yes, there are conversations in this movie that are just Bruce Campbell talking to himself. I can't lie, it's a little distracting, as are the frequent uses of iconic horror writers and directors as character names. But this is far from the first or the last movie we've talked about on the podcast that has done that. Since we are talking cast, Raimi's physical performance was done by Pete Ferry, who doesn't have a whole lot of credits, but who does appear in the psychological horror movie Take Shelter, alongside half-price horror alumni Robert Longstreet and Michael Shannon. His partner Mercer is played by Michael Grossi, who hasn't done any other acting in film or television. As I say, that's not uncommon for some people after their first experience with the daily grind of shooting. Some folks find it's just not for them. And others, like Robert Kakai, who plays the film's villain Reverend Jones, have a lot of fun and dive into it wholeheartedly. Kakai came to Bookwalter's attention as one of the hosts of the Frank and Drack Show, a Cleveland-area horror-hosting show that ran in the late 80s, and he's recently reprised that role for Transylvania Tonight and Monster Movie Night. 
Other cast members tended to stick close to Bookwalter as his career as an indie movie maker progressed. Bogdan Pechik, who plays Dr. Molson, also popped up in Robot Ninja and Zombie Cop, and Floyd Ewing Jr., who's Captain Klein in this film, is also in Robot Ninja and Bookwalter's upcoming film Side Effects May Vary. Maria Markovic, who plays Anna, was also in Robot Ninja, clearly a spiritual sequel in many ways, while Roger Graham, who is Dr. Franklin here, has no other credits to his name. And Jolie Jacunas, who is an actor, a line producer, and a casting director on this film, went on from playing Color Here to guest roles on Home Improvement, Boy Meets World, Conan the Adventurer, and Sports Night. So she's kept at it over the years. But the film begins with Anna and her father, Dr. Bo, played by Lester Clark, as they barricade themselves inside their house to the sound of menacing growls and chomping flesh. We assume they're getting ready to fend off a zombie invasion, but it's a fake-out. As we'll discover later, Bo is a scientist experimenting on a life-extending serum that's accidentally resulted in the creation of a zombie plague, and the invaders are an angry mob of local religious townfolk who view his work as sacrilegious. We don't get that backstory right away, though. All we see is the mob's leader, Jason, played by Michael Todd, who's the son of the Reverend, as he's attacked by the zombies in the house while looking for Bo. Presumably this is the patient zero of the zombie apocalypse we see playing out over the opening credits, which spreads from Akron, Bookwalter's hometown like Romero, who he was heavily inspired by, he both worked out of and set his movie locally, all the way at least to Washington, D.C., a lot of this opening material is very reminiscent of the credits of Day, with lots of shots of zombies wandering the deserted streets and either feasting on dead flesh or imitating the rituals they remember from life. One zombie in particular who picks up a phone and dials a random number only to be greeted by the ominous tone of a disconnected line could be straight out of a Romero film. Another zombie who grabs a stack of zombie movies and brings them up to the register at a video store before attacking the clerk is a little less plausible, but entertaining in a goofy way. After the credits, we jump ahead a few years and the government has established a task force called the Zombie Squad to deal with the situation. Interestingly, we're never told exactly how far the crisis has spread. We know it's made it as far as D.C. and the president was killed by zombies, but that's only about 350 miles, and it's distinctly possible they haven't made it much further west than, say, Kansas City. Certainly we know that the plague is spread by bite, not by environmental contamination, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a chemically caused transformation, but if we're going to start tugging on that thread, there are a lot of movies that are going to make a whole lot less sense. The point is, a lot of life seems to be going on as normal, even if there's a sense that the social order is gradually collapsing, which makes this a surprisingly realistic movie when it comes to real-life crisis situations. Not that we've had experience with that in the last few years or anything. We follow a zombie squad team out into the countryside on a search and rescue to an area farmhouse, led by Captain Klein and composed of Ramey, Color, Mercer, and Richards so kind of a crowded station wagon on the ride out. They find the inhabitants dead, which is kind of good because I don't know where anyone they rescued would have sat, and Richards gets overwhelmed by a pair of zombies on the second floor. He decapitates one, but the other one bears him down to the ground and seems to be getting the upper hand when Raimi comes in, shoves a grenade into its mouth, and pushes it out the window. 
There's a surprisingly large amount of grenade usage in this movie, which doesn't seem like it would make tactical sense as a weapon against something that shrugs off the kind of shrapnel wounds that make grenades so lethal against humans, but which does give Bookwalter the chance to do lots of cool explosions. Incidentally, it occurs to me that we're never really told what does kill a zombie in this movie. The zombie Richards decapitates survives a gunshot wound to the head, so we're not playing by Romero rules, or at least not consistently, and the severed head continues to open and close its mouth even though it no longer has a body. Perhaps, like the zombies in Return of the Living Dead, you just have to do enough damage to it that it can't actually do anything anymore? So who knows? Explosives might just be the way to go, even if a grenade isn't actually designed to pack that kind of explosive punch. It's designed to fragment the metal casing and turn it into lethal shards of shrapnel that go into and cause jagged, open wounds. That's the kind of fun fact you don't get from other podcasts. Richard's reaction to his narrow escape seems to indicate that morale is low on the zombie squad. He has a full-blown freakout after his near-death experience, screaming to Raimi and Color about the cosmic absurdity of dead people who don't know they're dead. A lot of the complaints I see about this film center on the apparent ineptitude of the zombie-hunting cops we follow, but I tend to believe this is a feature and not a bug. Clearly the fight isn't going well if the president is dead and DC is overrun, so these are a mix of the people who've either been pressed into combat service for far too long and are cracking up, or who've been drafted to replace attrition in the ranks and don't have the training to handle the situation. I don't necessarily know that it's a deliberate artistic choice, or a commentary on the Vietnam War that still loomed pretty large in popular culture in 1989, but I'm willing to give Bookwalter the benefit of the doubt here and assume these people all seem kind of incompetent on purpose. It's also worth mentioning that Bookwalter was present during the filming of Day of the Dead, which also involved military forces making big, obvious mistakes regarding the handling of a zombie crisis because they were burned out and exhausted so he may be imitating his heroes a bit. Not in a bad way, but he may in fact be inspired by day. Klein tells the others that they're too late and the inhabitants are dead, so it's time to bug out and get back to headquarters, and Richards makes the fatal mistake of grabbing his fallen gun without looking where his hand is going. He puts it close enough to the severed zombie head to give it a chance to bite off the tips of his fingers, dooming him to death by zombie infection. One of the truly inspired moments in the movie comes when Bookwalter cuts to the zombie head and we see Richard's finger emerging from the bottom of its open throat. Richard's chooses to stay and be devoured by zombies rather than joining their ranks or seeking medical treatment he knows won't save him, and the others reluctantly respect his wishes. They leave him behind, collecting Mercer, who's managed to anger an entire horde of zombies, along the way, and depart for their home base. Their decision not to do a headshot as a mercy killing, combined with the speed of the horde that pursues Mercer, also points to these zombies as more in line with the O'Bannon living dead than the Romero hordes. I like that Bookwalter doesn't feel bound by tradition to do things the way his predecessor did them, and there's a lot more ambition to this movie than to a lot of similarly low-budget zombie flicks that are content to come up with variations on the Night of the Living Dead scenario. That said, it would be nice if things were explained or even consistent from moment to moment. Sometimes the zombies are very threatening and sometimes they're merely an inconvenience. As the group returns, we get some nice guerrilla filming of Washington, D.C., with zombies crowding the fence in front of the White House and shambling across the immaculate lawns in front of the Washington Memorial. 
And unfortunately, that does make the Zombie Squad's headquarters, which are clearly a repurposed school or community center, look even cheaper by comparison. There's a crowd of protesters outside who want the government to leave the zombies alone, and I'd say this is absurd and ludicrous, but then I look at the current Republican Party and just shrug fatalistically. These days it's very hard to get ahead of reality with your satire. Inside, Zombie Squad members are watching The Evil Dead on television. I would love to know how this movie got the rights to show portions of The Evil Dead when the makers of Evil Dead 2 couldn't, but I suspect the answer is nobody noticed. And one of them, Randall's, exchanges a bit of banter with Raimi's group before the latter head off to visit Dr. Molson for an update on the efforts to neutralize the zombies. Randall's is played by Michael Tobachko because a lot of the crew did double duty in front of the camera and a lot of the cast worked behind the scenes. By all accounts, this was a very cozy production with everyone pitching in mostly for the fun of being in a real live movie and nobody expecting to make any money off of it, including Bookwalter. Virtually everybody was local and many of them knew each other socially and hung out after shooting on a regular basis. Molson is a scientist very much in the mold of Dr. Logan from Day of the Dead, casually performing unethical experiments on zombie test subjects on the grounds that dead people don't have rights and can't refuse consent to his studies. He's hooked up a voice synthesizer to one zombie who babbles, Feed me, and I'm hungry, between incongruous renditions of the Star-Spangled Banner, and he's casually belittling to staff members Franklin and Savini, who's played by stuntman Joe Wedlake when the actual Tom Savini begged off due to scheduling conflicts with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. But the little detail that makes him instantly hateable is the trucker cap he wears with the slogan, I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. Somehow, just the fact that this man finds that hat to be so funny that he has to wear it everywhere, even in the middle of the zombie apocalypse, is just the perfect grace note to make you start rooting for his death right away. I know this movie has flaws, but credit where it's due, that's an inventive costuming touch that works really well. And it's a good thing, because, look... I'm not going to rag on any of these performers, they're all amateur actors doing the best they can for free, and because of the limitations of the Super 8 format, they weren't even able to shoot sync sound. All of their dialogue was dubbed in later, which does make it difficult to have the emotions match the scene. But there are a lot of stiff and stilted performances on display here. Everybody sounds like they're reading lines off a script, and nobody really sounds natural except for Bruce Campbell, which does take you out of the movie at several key moments and does a lot to put people off a film that really is trying very hard to be big and ambitious. Pechik just isn't able to muster up the kind of deep loathsomeness that someone like Joe Pilato nailed so effortlessly. So the costuming needs to make up for it. Molson explains that he thinks he has a solution to the zombie plague, which otherwise has to run its course in each individual host over the course of a month of autolysis, but he needs Dr. Bo's original notes in Akron to put it into practice. He tells the group that they need to accompany him and Franklin on a mission to find the research, a mission made all the more urgent when Mercer gets a little too close to the talking test zombie and collects a painful bite on the wrist. His bite gives the mission a ticking clock, but he's still in good enough shape to go along, and the base commander clears him to accompany them. The next morning, after a group of zombies decimates the protesters in a scene that's either intentionally or unintentionally hilarious, I'm honestly not sure, 
The group drives to Akron, which is seemingly abandoned both by the living and the dead. They get to Dr. Bo's house just after nightfall, and after a few zombies that seem more interested in running away than in consuming human flesh, they find only an abandoned building and a dead scientist. They don't realize they're being watched by Vincent, a twitchy and nervous man played by John Kaloff, until Vincent runs up and begs to be let in with the rest of the group. Vincent explains that he's a member of a local church, and the others quickly write him off as essentially harmless if a little unnerving. Molson and Franklin begin going through Dr. Bo's research, looking for his original formula so they can create an antiviral serum from his notes. Given the importance of the mission, it's a little surprising they didn't send more people, but I suppose a larger group would have attracted more zombie attention. Sometimes more isn't better when it comes to intelligence operations. Ramey and Color find the diary of Dr. Bo's daughter, Anna, and Color gives Ramey a shoulder massage that makes a little more sense once you know that there's a discarded subplot about their romantic relationship, but which just feels weird and inappropriate without that context. Vincent eavesdrops on their conversation, but is caught by Mercer and skulks away. The next morning, the soldiers in the group eat breakfast outdoors at a picnic table, which just feels like a very odd decision both on the part of the group and on the filmmaker's part, because if there's anything that breaks the tension you're trying to build, it's watching people hang out together and have a picnic. And this is an area that you're supposed to be selling as hostile and zombie-infested. Remy makes the mistake of trying to engage with Vincent, and he gives off immediate and obvious creepy cultist vibes that nobody seems to pick up on. And again, not gonna rag on Kaloff's performance, but his efforts to ratchet up the intensity of the scene don't quite work here because he can't seem to find the balance between naturalistic anger and precise delivery of his scripted dialogue, and Bookwalter doesn't seem to have given him free reign to go full method. As a result, he's louder but not angrier, which is an odd combination. Molson finds the notes and tells the others that they can get to work destroying the zombies now, which causes Vincent to lose his cool and hack up Klein. Raimi chases him down and shoots him, dealing a lethal but not immediately fatal wound, but another group of cultists led by Jeff Welch's Commander Carpenter pull up in a car and drive away with him. Raimi and Mercer follow in the squad car and come upon what we're told is a church, but looks more like another school. This seems to be where the remaining human survivors have holed up under the direction of Reverend Jones, and they're keeping the zombies in cages and basement rooms and feeding them scraps of human meat, presumably from people who defied Jones. It's obvious that this is a highly authoritarian religion, and that would be a very effective and terrifying threat to keep people in line. We see a pair of cultists, Lloyds and Powers, played by Bookwalter himself and Jennifer Mullen, feeding the zombies by hand as Carpenter pulls up with the wounded Vincent, and Lloyds informs Jones and his quote-unquote daughter Anna of the situation, while Jones feeds the zombified Jason from the beginning of the film. Obviously, the Reverend Jones, who wears a pair of comically oversized sunglasses throughout much of the film, is supposed to be a reference to Jim Jones, leader of the People's Temple, a religious movement of the 60s and 70s that became notorious when about 900 core members relocated to Guyana and responded to claims that they were abusing their members by killing a U.S. congressman and then dying by mass murder and suicide. 
ever since the movement has become a cultural stand-in for the mentality of slavish devotion unto death to a charismatic leader, even though most of the members were killed by force-feeding them or injecting them with cyanide, and far fewer willingly took the fatal poison than initially believed. Also, it was Flavor-Aid, not Kool-Aid, that was laced with poison, a fact mentioned so many times on the Wikipedia page that I have to imagine some poor employee of the Kool-Aid company whose sole job is to refute that bit of lore. So this is a none-too-subtle effort to inform us that the church group Vincent belongs to are our bad guys, even though their primary contribution to the plot so far has been to try to stop the scientist who's working on a zombie plague, adopt the daughter of said scientists, and humanely round up and contain all the existing zombies in Akron, who die in a month anyway, a fact that's mentioned once and then completely forgotten for the rest of the film. Raimi leaves Mercer to sleep in the car. At this point, he begins to depart the narrative for a while as the zombie plague begins to incapacitate him, and goes to investigate. He finds a group of people training muzzled zombies to walk on a leash, and frankly, if Molson had used his scientific genius on the concept of just gagging his test subjects, then at least six other people would be alive in this film, including Molson himself. Um, spoilers. But all of the cultists flee at Raimi's approach. We don't fully see this until later, but it appears that the Reverend Jones is training the zombies in much the same way that Logan intended to in Day of the Dead to create an army who serves him, which is why Vincent didn't want Molson curing the zombie plague. After the death and reanimation of his son, Jones now sees the zombies as an instrument delivered to him by God to punish the wicked and sinful world, and he's not going to give them up without a fight. Oh, and his group practices human sacrifice just in case you didn't realize yet that they're evil. The moment when Raimi sees a group of chanting black-robed figures drive a sword straight into a woman's chest and says to himself, it's a goddamn cult, in a tone of mild surprise, is probably the most unintentionally amusing scene in the whole movie. Vincent dies, mourned by Anna, who's apparently his girlfriend, and his last request is for Powers to get a gun for her so that she can defend herself in the event that her quote-unquote father turns on her. He might not be her father. Not to spoil anything, but it's a possibility. Vincent's body is then fed to the zombies in the basement, an event witnessed by Raimi but not Anna, and he also sees Jason in a wooden cage in Reverend Jones's office. While there, he overhears Anna asking Jones about Dr. Bo and begins to suspect that she's the scientist's daughter, brainwashed over the last few years to forget her previous life. Armed with that intelligence, he goes back to the car and drives back to Bo's house with Mercer. That evening, Powers goes to steal the Reverend's gun, only for him to kill her in retaliation for the theft. This is a scene that mainly seems to set up that Reverend Jones is evil and not much else. The zombie squad tries to radio the formula they found back to headquarters, but the signal doesn't carry far enough. Molson and Franklin tell Raimi and Color to get a test subject to try the antiviral ceramon to confirm it works before they use it on Mercer. But with all the zombies rounded up by the cult, there's really only one place they can go to fulfill the order. And while they're gone, Molson decides he doesn't have time to wait and simply injects Mercer with the serum without his consent. 
a lot is made of this, and rightly so, because there are obvious issues regarding subjecting someone to an experimental medical treatment without their authorization, but it really wouldn't have affected the plot either way if Molson had waited. Because the serum affects the living and the dead differently, they wouldn't have known what would happen to Mercer even if they got the data they were looking for. Still, though, it's another signpost that Molson is an unethical shitbird. Ramey and Culler go back to the cult and steal the Reverend's son. Because he's the only zombie they can get to without accidentally releasing a whole bunch more. Obviously, this is about the biggest way to piss off the cult short of taking a big steaming dump right on the Reverend's head, and soon the whole group is mobilizing to head for Bo's house to get their zombie back. Ramey and Culler return with Jason, who gets injected with the antiviral serum, seemingly to no effect, and Molson lets them know he also tested it on Mercer already. There's an amusingly unfortunate bit of staging here, as the way Mercer's body is oriented means his feet are up next to the other actors and his head is off screen, so it looks like they're already covering his face with a sheet and are just talking about him as though he's still alive, when in fact that's his feet under a blanket. A squad of humans and trained zombies pulls up, ready to start mayhem, but Raimi and his squad have plenty of grenades and aren't shy about using them. They get away without significant difficulties, but in an accidentally comical plot contrivance, they simply forget that Mercer is still asleep in the basement and leave without him. I kind of feel like they could have worked harder at making this an unavoidable complication, and not just our heroes dropping the ball in a big and obvious way. But again, these are people under a lot of strain and very much out of their element. Maybe everyone just thought it was someone else's job to take care of the sick guy. The cult kidnaps Mercer and retrieves Jason, and Raimi and Culler make the decision to go back to the church at dawn to rescue their friend. They pull up at what looks more like noon than dawn, to be honest. And of course, it's a trap. They're being led to the main altar room where Jones plans to kill them in front of his congregation in order to cement his control over the group. Which appears pretty tenuous, to be honest, when he tells them, You may rise. Not a single person gets up. It all leads to a confrontation between the zombie squad and Jones's followers. They walk in, and Franklin walks up and frees Mercer with remarkable ease while everyone just sort of watches. Jason then melts, fairly abruptly, and as Franklin removes Mercer's muzzle, we see that the serum hasn't cured him and he's become a zombie. But he thanks Franklin, so he's a sentient and erudite zombie. It's a cool twist, and I kind of wish it had come earlier in the movie so we could have gotten to spend a little more time on it. Things move pretty fast from there. The Reverend shoots Franklin, and Raimi shoots the Reverend. The cultists then charge Raimi's group en masse, and they run away. Well, I say run. But unfortunately, the staging of this scene makes it very clear that they never get above a light jog, which is unintentionally humorous, but in a charming way. Raimi and Culler take out several cultists, but there always seem to be more. Me, if I was in this situation, I'd be hanging at the back of the cultist pack while the two shotgun-wielding cops are mowing my partners and friends down. Dying, the Reverend goes down to the basement and pulls a Miguel by releasing all of the imprisoned zombies in a final act of petulant spite. The influence of Day on this movie is pretty clear, if we're being strictly honest, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think if Romero could have found a way to mix in a polemic on the evils of religion with his other nihilistic messages, he would have. And this feels like an extension of his ideas, rather than a mere imitation of them. And I'd rather have an ambitious Romero-inspired movie than a bland one. 
Color goes out to start the car, which separates her from the main narrative in a way that's very in keeping with her somewhat underwritten role in this movie. I haven't talked about her much, but I feel like I should at least talk about how little I talk about her. She gets so little to do here that she feels a lot like Sigourney Weaver's character in Galaxy Quest, mostly there to repeat other people's lines for emphasis and agree with things other characters say. It's kind of a shame. Raimi and Molson then get separated by a crowd of cultists. Mercer frees himself and decides to get his revenge on Molson for turning him into an intelligent zombie, which seems highly reasonable under the circumstances. Molson barricades himself in the Reverend's office and spots a working landline, which he uses to relay the formula to Savini while simultaneously berating him for his incompetence. Molson's commitment to being an asshole is admirable here. Raimi bumps into Mercer, who warns him that the serum is too dangerous to use as a cure for the living. The two of them kill Carpenter, which feels like another one of those hills-have-eyes gags in the making, and Mercer tells Raimi he's not going back with the group. There's actually a kind of sweetness to their interaction here, a friendship that we really haven't gotten the chance to develop up till now, but that does come through in this limited interaction. Raimi supports his friend, who he knows is going through some changes and needs validation, and Mercer isn't the person he was but can still connect to the people from his old life. I'm not going to say this movie is queer horror, but this is a very queer moment, and in a good way. On her way out to the car, Color runs into Anna, and we finally get the big dramatic revelation we've been building to that Anna is actually Bo's daughter... And then Anna gets tackled and ripped to shreds by a pack of zombies, so never mind about that plotline. I'm not sure what they were going for here, but it winds up feeling very anticlimactic. Color gets away and heads to the car. Mercer commands a group of zombies to follow him, and they do, which is another thing I really wish we'd had time to explore. They break into Jones's office after Molson relays the formula, but before he can warn them not to use it on living humans, which is Chekhov's omission, I guess, and he has to hide in Jason's old cage. But the zombies break into it before he can sneak out through the side and out the window, and not only does Mercer rip his tongue out, he steals his hat for good measure. It's probably the best death in the whole movie, and it's got some impressive gore, too. In fact, all the gore in this movie punches well above its weight, clearly Savini-inspired, but very impressive for all that. Everything seems settled, but just as Raimi makes it out of the church, he bumps into a zombie that takes a chunk out of his neck. It must be said there's something inadvertently funny about the way it brushes his collar delicately out of the way first. He makes it to the car and passes out as color drives him away, and when he wakes up, he's back at headquarters. And, as you've probably guessed, the genuinely incompetent Dr. Savini, not just berated as such, but actually useless, has used the new formula on him. Raimi sits up, now transformed into a zombie-human hybrid, and Color gets her very own dolly zoom as she realizes her partner, and in the full version of the movie, former romantic partner, is now a monster. It's kind of a neat variant on the dolly zoom, too, because one of the zombies on the table sits up right behind her, so the background flies away, but he seems to leap right into her. We don't see exactly what happens next, but the next shot is of two figures climbing back into the zombie squad car. 
The logo's been spray-painted over, turning it into a human hunting squad, and they lead the zombie hordes on their way to eliminate the human race as the credits roll to a brilliantly bizarre new wave song called The Answer that recaps the plot Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles style. You can find it on YouTube. It really does hit that sweet spot between Kraftwerk and unsigned buddies of the director, and I instantly love it because I have the weirdest soft spot for cheesy, low-budget movie songs. And will I hang on to this movie? I know I probably shouldn't, but the heart wants what it wants, and I unabashedly love this silly, weird little cult film. It's got some unconvincing acting and some extremely low production value, sure, but the parts that are hokey are hokey in all the right ways to be fun stupid instead of boring stupid. And it's a movie that's not afraid to take big swings and bite off more than it can chew, and I like that about it. This is another one that I owned before I saw it at Half Price Books, so it's absolutely staying in my collection. And if you want to talk about cheesy movies, sentient zombie hordes, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, here we go, folks. Sound the trumpets, raise the drawbridge, and drop the Oldsmobile, because we're going into episode 100 with the conclusion to Sam Raimi's original Evil Dead trilogy, Army of darkness. See you then.